0: You know, I've I've never really had a, a real salary until when I, we raised venture capital in my last company company's first time I had a real salary. And then when we raised our series A, not our seed round, we paid ourselves okay, but like series A was we've had our first real salary. I was like, holy moly. I was like, I can afford rent, we can pay for the cars, we can like go to nicer restaurants, like buy nicer things, we never had that luxury. yep And pay off all of our credit cards every month. Like that was that was a huge burden. I mean, my wife, she's always been the breadwinner. She's always worked in healthcare and has had a good job. I was like...
1: Hi, hi, and I'm back. It's Matt Parker, host of the Stretch 4 podcast, back with you live from San Francisco. Happy to be back on the show, recording, back in the groove. Uh, missed everyone. In the past couple weeks I've missed the dopamine Of putting a podcast out And getting 50 people To download it on the internet I don't think there's anything like it So I'm happy to be back Uh, We're up to uh, We're over 500 total downloads Through our first five episodes And they say 99% of podcasts Don't get 10 episodes So with today's episode We'll be 60% of the way To being and making it further Than almost 99% Or 99% of other podcasts so welcome back. Happy to be back this week uh, on the show. I want to do a quick unpacking and debriefing of the books that I got to read in February. Uh, I also want to give my take on Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, if you've been living under a rock, the past week has been quite interesting with Silicon Valley Bank becoming a entity of the federal government. Uh, and many of us people here who bank with silicon valley bank were trying to figure out what to do now it seems like everything's back to normal and we're being told to put money back in silicon valley bank so I'll talk a bit about that i'm also going to talk a bit about my perspective of what went down and how i saw it as a wake-up call to a lot of us here in silicon valley uh and, and kind of unpack there the the groups and the groups that are forming after this is quite interesting the people that were fine the people that weren't and what it all means uh this week um and when this comes out i'll be at the fintech meetup in las vegas at the aria i'll be giving a presentation on monday morning and then i've booked up several meetings with uh potential prospects customers and partners In Vegas, so if you are in the small community of fintech and you do listen to this podcast, I would hope that uh, you're actually doing something productive and meeting people at the event. But maybe I'll see some folks that are stretch for listeners out there in the wild. We also this week have an interview with a friend who actually I'm going to hopefully connect with while I'm in Vegas. Uh, Cody Barbo is the founder CEO of Trust and Will. I have very compelling conversation with him. Uh, he recently announced a $15 million, uh, venture funding round for his company, trust and will. And as always, we'll talk about the business side of things and what trust and will does, but we'll get into the nitty gritty of being a founder, how he views personal and finance. Uh, he has a very strong take on, you know, relocating out to Texas after being a lifelong Californian, uh, and also his life as a parent. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into the show. So moving right along, recapping my fitness for, for February. So as you may have known, I may have mentioned here on the podcast previously, I'm looking to run my first half marathon this year, planning to run that marathon here in San Francisco in July. And so my legs and my body, my cardio and endurance need to get prepared for that. So my goal last month was just, hey, baseline, I want to run 20, 20 miles. I ran 17 miles, so not bad, but I think in a whole month, I want to run more. So this month, I'm setting a cadence to run two to four miles for every workout. So generally, I start my workouts with like warm-up, but now it's like two-mile minimum or one one and a half-mile minimum warm-up. I'll go into a workout. If I have time, I will work run after, and then I want to set up big long runs on the weekends. So anything from like six to 10 miles on the weekends. So that's running moving forward. So we'll check this again next month to see how I did. But 17 out of 20, not a terrible percentage, but I think I'm going to actually ramp up that 20 mile per month goal. And we'll see where we start out in March. Future is my fitness app. And so I had 21 out of 22 workouts with 22 were my goal for Uh, February, so I did 21 of my 22 assigned workouts, which is good. I didn't play any basketball, which happened to be on my list. I planned to play one time last month, didn't play. And then the weight. The goal was to cut nine because, again, I'm ramping up for this half marathon where I don't need to be at 240. I need to be more closer to 230, maybe even on the 220 side to really compete and run well. And that's just based on, like, insights I get, right? You're obviously going to move faster if you're lighter, it's going to be better on your knees. So the goal right now is to be around 225 in July when I do this run. Right now, I'm right around 243.6. So I did cut half a pound last month, but not enough for my goal. So running more, obviously dieting is a part of it as well, but just generally running more. If I'm able to run two to four miles every workout, if I'm doing three to five workouts a, a week that should ramp to 40 miles a month, right? And just the mileage is crazy. Like when you run, like people hate running, right? Like a lot of my wife, she hates running. A lot of people I know hate running. I'm not a lover of running, but I do realize like if I get on the treadmill and run for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, if I go outside in San Francisco when it's nice and run for 45 minutes to an hour, two to three times a week, my weight issue won't be a problem because just burning so many calories. And it's good for your cardio. And I also think like, I think one unique thing I do see here in San Francisco, it's probably not unique to San Francisco, but just because it's a beautiful place to run, you see the age cadence of people who are like runners, right? Like running is something that it's not a young man's sport, really. Yeah, right. I see people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even sometimes just running. So I think that's like a baseline thing that as long as you have like legs, you can do. And so that's something that I think I can do for the rest of my life, as long as I'm, you know, able to do it. And I'm a, I'm a bit taller than average. And I think that's something that has a factor, but I do feel like, Hey, like a lot of people are like, Hey, you should be biker. You should do bikes. It's like easier on your knees. I just think running is just a basic skill that anybody can do. Performance running is a bit different. So getting into the map marathon world is going to be a different world for me, but I do think just keeping a baseline of being able to run I'm going to maintain a weight and I'm going to maintain like the basics. So that's my thing on running. If you're a runner, I'm looking for recommendations around like what I should wear, like which runner shoes I should wear. I've always been a Nike guy, but I've been told multiple times, especially here in San Francisco that Nikes aren't like really good running shoes. So I'm open to wearing some other shoes, but I want to know like what's the best runner shoes and why, and you know, why should I wear Brooks or these other types of brands? So if you're into that stuff, You know hit me up definitely want to learn more about the running game as i enter this new phase of my life as a runner moving on to our second subject obviously if you've been living under a rock you've probably heard svb silicon valley bank many times in the past couple weeks And one of the interesting things that that emerged from this story was, you know, obviously this is a tech podcast or tech business podcast because you know my day job is, you know, being a venture back founder, which basically means that you raise money from institutions and very wealthy people to build companies that statistically nine out of ten times go to zero, but the ones that the ones that do make it become multi million dollar, multi billion dollar outcomes. And they produce 10 to 100 X returns or more for the venture capitalists. So that's really the world that I live in. So that's kind of like my space. So when this happened, obviously, I bank with Silicon Valley Bank. I've been a, a, a happy, you know, fairly happy customer for the past five to six years, ever since I moved to the Bay and started my company. And it was a very interesting week. It seemed like everything was just burning down all at once last week, right? Like you couldn't access your bank account, your business bank account everybody was just up in arms. Like we didn't know what was happening. And so now, you know, a week later, people are kind of settled. And, you know, what really came of this story, there were kind of like four things for me that really stood out, really more so about the venture capitalists. I think founders, we are resilient. Many of us have to go through a lot of shit to even just raise a couple dollars, much less tens of millions of dollars. And we are we'll figure it out. I think the venture capital community was rubbed the wrong way. And I like there's many points in last week where people you know, like Gary Tan was saying it's a national emergency. Uh, you had Jason Calacanis, who's also a notable venture capital kind of like influencer, tweeting in all caps on Sunday about bank runs that are going to continue to happen. And like not to get into the detail, there's tons of information if you want to go read all these articles about what bank runs are, what happened at the Fed. All these things. I think I referenced last last uh, month a book called Lord of Easy Money, Lords of Easy Money, which is a book that really unpacks just how all this works. You know how the Fed prints money for banks, essentially. And you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of money was printed, and so we're really seeing these second and third order effects. And 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 uniquely for Silicon Valley, like I remember raising money in 2021, it felt like valuations were just unlimited. You, I almost felt like I was underachieving getting the highest valuation I'd ever got it ever. And and just getting it like in a week, like everybody was just fine paying the prices. And for me, that was a high valuation. But obviously, there are people raising 10, 20 times, 30 times more than me that were kind of in the same place in the same spot. So it was a very crazy. Silicon Valley leveraged this. More money was flowing into venture capital. More money was being invested in the companies. They were really ramping up their deposits in 2021. And you, you could see it in their S1s with what their revenue numbers were. And at the end of 2022 it was the same thing. So these companies, so the company was growing. They became the 16th largest bank at their peak. But what was happening on the back end was just, it was really like a house being built on, on sand and venture capitalists, which were reaching out to, to people like me telling us to pour our money from, from, from Silicon Valley Bank, move it to other banks it actually happened. There was a bank run. And more importantly for me was I thought the perception of how Silicon Valley was perceived by the rest of the world from a political standpoint was very telling. Right. What a lot of, you know, what a lot of people thought was that, you know, VCs, you know, I think in the Valley, just being in this echo chamber for six years, a lot of people here have this perception that what we're doing is for the betterment of the humanity, right? Technology is moving us forward. We even see that now with AI. Everything's about moving humanity forward, making the world a better place. And I think what people really learned is Silicon Valley is just another form of capitalism, right? We already have Wall Street, which is hedge funds, private equity, bankers, people in New York. We know that they're in it to make money, right? Like we know that's what they do. You also have Hollywood, which is creative, art, music, television, all the things that we consume on a day-to-day basis. But at the end of the day, we know what the box office is like they literally call it a box office hit if a movie is grossing a certain amount of money or, you know, buying Beyonce tickets and you're paying like fifteen hundred dollars to go see Beyonce. Right. Like it's all about money. Right. And so we know that I think Silicon Valley, for whatever reason, has been able to kind of avoid that. And people haven't really started to unpack that. It's all about money until recently. And with the bank run and the bank crisis, you really get to see it. Right. You, You really have like. Millionaires, maybe borderline billionaires, saying that it's a national emergency because you know venture capitalists and startups that are probably not profitable can't get access to their funds through a bank that literally caters to them, right? Right? If you know what about Silicon Valley, it's like a bank built perfectly for venture capital and founders, which isn't a bad thing. Obviously, I used it for six years, but it's the reality of the privilege and honor that you have to have those types of services. Even in the midst of Silicon Valley Bank's demise, you saw the selection bias, right? There were founders that I talked to that had, you know, hundreds of investors reaching out to them, asking them, are they okay? Do they need money? Can we help you make payroll? And then on the other side, you might have had founders that didn't have anybody reach out to them. (laughs) Right. And so there's it's it's really you know, in the midst of even like the, you know, it was much unlike like the pandemic where it was like everybody like needed help, right? Cause it was just like, we couldn't go outside. We couldn't do shit, but this was like a little bit different because it really affected only really the 1%, right? And, and people tried to say that, well, employees at these companies need to get paid. But even then when you think about tech, the highest compensation for knowledge workers in tech. So you have the highest comp, highest compensated employees. Venture capitalists who, you know, primarily out to make 10 to 100 X return on their investments and founders who if you're a founder and you're you got a lot of money in Silicon Valley Bank, that probably means they also gave you options on very, 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 very efficient Offerings of debt, right? Like I know a lot of people at Silicon Valley Bank, if you raise 10 million, they, they lever you up with another 10 million in debt as long as you held that 10 million. So you really could get up to $20 million in access on a $10 million fundraise. And then if you were able to get, I never forget talking to Silicon Valley Bank because, you know, my company, we're a seed stage company. We haven't raised our series A and. They were telling me like, oh yeah, like once you get the series C or series D, you can get a mortgage. You can get our private client products, but it was kind of like, you know, like get away little C company, you know, just get get our basic bank, banking services, but that was the way they treated you. And so imagine the eliteness, the elite, the elitist culture that you saw with a lot of these VCs. And I think it was really just telling. And I think Silicon Valley is a big wake up call because. It is the haves and have nots. Right. I I see this every day. Right. If you're a hot company, you're able to raise tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. You're okay. But if you're someone that's not as successful as a founder, as a fundraiser, you're kind of, you know, left to the wayside. Right. And, And we even saw that. Right. People were talking to successful people. And so I, I, I took it as a learning experience. Right. I think last week we really found out if you're a founder, you really found out who's down for you, who's not. You know, were people making sure you were OK in that time of need? Were they checking in? Did they provide resources? Did they have a protocol? Did they have a plan. If you really did miss payroll or you were going to miss payroll, were they willing to sacrifice and send you the money? And I think if you learned a lot about the venture capital community, because a lot of venture capitalists were very loud on Twitter, they were sounding the alarm, they were creating these forms, they were in panic mode. But I think what it was really showing was just the selection bias that is Silicon Valley just being amplified through crisis. And so with that amplification, you saw that. And and with, with venture capital in itself, with how Silicon Valley worked with venture capitalists, there is definitely a transitionary time. I'm happy that they actually failed, essentially, because I think a lot of Silicon Valley Bank, the, the high-end customer was who they were trying to serve. So even though a company like mine, that's a C company, we had a bank account with Silicon Valley Bank, They weren't providing like so much more services to us. Right. They were primarily, you know, using us as a way to see if we could become successful. If we go raise more money, then they come in. But you still needed to be at a certain scale to really get a great service from Silicon Valley Bank. And I think what we do learn is, you know, I take the way main things. Right. Silicon Valley venture capital is just like any other capital market. It's not differentiated. It's actually devalued now in the markets. Selection bias exists. You want to be on the, you want to be as a founder figuring out how you are in that 20% of founders that deliver the 80% of results. And in this case, 20% of the founders get the 80% of attention. I think it was actually probably 10%, right? Like of the 50,000 startups that Silicon Valley Bank says that they banked, I would promise you that. There were 500 to 1,000 that they really cared about and that really like VCs were going crazy about. The long tail of that, you weren't getting a lot of assistance. And that just leads into like understanding the have and the have nots, right? And understanding that it exists, waking up to it, taking the pill to know that reality is real, looking at your business, right? Looking at your bank account, looking at your balance sheet, looking at your customer's And figuring out how do you have some kind of self-sustainability to where you don't have to rely on venture capital to be successful. And last, to Silicon Valley, realizing that taking the pill that, hey, we're not saving the world in Silicon Valley. We're just building businesses, just like every other business. If this had happened to a bank that services farmers, I'm sure the national headlines wouldn't have been like they were. The coverage wouldn't have been like it was, right? Right. If this had happened to a bank that serves nurses, right, like we wouldn't have been all up in arms or like this being the end of the world. Right. But Because of Silicon Valley and because people are allowed and we created Twitter, the echo chamber was very loud. But I do believe a lot of founders learned a lot of lessons. You learn that a lot of people, even on your cap table, they don't really fuck with you. And it's fine. I think it's fine. But. Just keep that energy, right? As you approach your business to know that, like, this founder life is real and, you know, you got to be able to deliver for yourself, for your company, for your team, for your customers. And until you're a publicly traded company, your shareholders are last, right? That's the last people that you have to think about because at the end of the day, they got a portfolio and they're optimizing that portfolio for that 20, that 80 20 rule. Of their 80, of their 100% of their portfolio, they care about 20%. And so you as a founder, you need to have the same approach. So that's my take, maybe a little bit morbid, but that's my opinion there. We're moving forward. I think I'm staying with Silicon Valley Bank, but I've also created bank accounts across the board. Uh, I think everybody should diversify and spread out their money as uh, across as many places as possible. Episode five of the Stretch Four podcast today. I have a fellow founder, Cody Barbo, who's the founder CEO of a estate planning startup, Trust and Will. Cody comes to us today from Dallas, Texas, where he lives with his family, and we're really excited about this conversation. Uh, Cody, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having
1: me. So today, the goal is have this conversation, as we do mostly on all the Stretch Four episodes, we talk with founders about everything generally outside of their business. We don't focus primarily on some of the things that we as founders go through day to day, product market fit, fundraising, sales, building teams. And so today with Cody, what I want to do is unpack his approach to raising his family, his fitness and diet regimens. I know he's very active in the gym there in Dallas and when he's traveling, as well as some interesting things around Founder finance and personal finance. Again, none of this information is meant to be financial advice, but I do think there is a area where, as founders, we have to prepare ourselves for the roller coaster ride that can be startup companies, right? From salaries, from compensation, to protecting our families and protecting those that we love, as well as providing the best opportunity for our team. So, Cody, thank you for doing the show today, and. Just wanted to start off uh, just reading through Trust & Wells' 2022 annual impact report. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, this is a quote from you. As a father, I want my kids to grow up and know about the good things that this company has accomplished and prioritized from day one. We didn't wait until we had a spotlight on us to do things. We started when no one was watching. And this is from your 2022 annual impact letter. That leads me to the first question. What have you learned about being a, a startup founder and balancing that with being a parent?
0: Yeah, so I think uh, well, it starts from when I was a kid. My, my mom and dad worked hospitality for almost their entire careers, and always watched how they treated other people, especially service workers. And for me, as I graduated school and you know went down this entrepreneurial path, I, I didn't go the corporate route. I, I've never had a real job, so to say. And this is my my third startup, second venture back business. And I think for me, it's uh, it's been an incredible journey, but. The journey that's been equal has been with my wife, who's been with me through all three startups. So I don't know if she'd ever sign up to do a podcast interview, but she'd have a ton of perspective to share from her side of the table. But also it's changed me with this business because I got married basically within a week of starting this company. And then we had our daughter three years ago. So kind of halfway through that process, now having a toddler in the house and running the company. And I think it's kind of grounded me in a way. Like I think when you're younger or you're hungrier for success, because we're so influenced by companies around us, people that inspire us, that run these companies. You see the headlines of certain companies on TechCrunch and Wall Street Journal. And for me, the headline that I'm chasing is, am I a good dad or husband? Because if I can start there, it allows me to be a better leader within the business. Keeps me humble. I think that that's a true statement. And watching a lot of my my colleagues, my co-founders, along with probably almost a third of our team becoming parents or hiring parents with young kids, made me a different type of leader than I've been in the past, a lot more selfless. And uh, it's, it's been very fulfilling. So my wife and I have been together for 12 years. So she's been with me through all three startups with all the ups and downs. But the start of Trust Trustmole was interesting because the timing of it within a week of starting the company, I was getting married. And then when we closed our Series A was when we had our daughter. Right after we closed our Series A, we had our daughter. So had like first real income as I brought a child into the world, which is kind of nice, uh, but it was like limited time on the income, right? never guaranteed. But it was cool because at the same time that I had my daughter, my two co-founders had kids right after me. We just like went back to back. And as our team went from like 10 people, even in, at the end of 2019, we were, were now a team of 80 plus all across the country. We have like a good chunk of our team, like probably 25 plus that have minor kids, like kids under five, five at home. So it's, it's taught me, uh, I think, to be a better leader, a different leader, a lot more selfless. Not that I wasn't self, I wasn't selfish before, but you know, you have to be more selfless. As you go down the path of dad or mom and dad and entrepreneurship, but uh, it's been fun.
1: Okay, that that so that that kind of brings me to the second question: parenting. A uh, parenting is hard in, in, in itself. When you had your daughter, dealing with young children, obviously the biggest thing for me that's been an impact on my life is sleep. So, what were you? At, you know, but you know, as a founder, you know, in those early days, you're burned to midnight. You know, midnight oil. You're working all different types of hours a day. How did becoming a parent impact your life and your workflow and how has it still remained the same? You know, as your daughter's grown, as she's gotten older, you, you mentioned, Hey, I I work now nine to five. How, how has that changed and evolved over the past five
0: years? Yeah, I think that before the pandemic, everything was different, obviously, but I I didn't have obligations other than my, my wife and our dog, which I was still pretty good about being present. Like I, I I asked for permission to do this company as much as I wanted to set expectations with myself because my previous company, which would raise venture I was working way too much, way too often, always on the verge of burnout, along with that being a little bit of our culture. It wasn't healthy for anybody, let alone myself. So going into Trust Mall with Daniel and Brian, I told them up front, I was like, hey, look, if I am leaving early, it is with intention. If I'm coming in at like, at the time, like 830, I'd come in a little bit earlier before we had our kid. It's like, I want to be the first one in, so I can be the first one out. And it's not to like get out of the office. It's to get as much work as I've done in those hours feel good about it and then continue it, pick it up the next day that I can still have a relationship, a personal life, get good sleep, work out and take care of myself. Like it's important to be selfish and taking care of yourself so that you can take care of everyone else around you and especially the business. So the pandemic in a weird way was like a blessing in disguise because, you know, like my, my schedule would have been so different. I was traveling so much before the pandemic. We weren't traveling anywhere and it changed the needs of how we operate everybody. And for me and how I ran trust them all, I was proud to be able to work from home. I was on dad duties in the morning and generally in the early evenings because my wife, she works full time at the hospital and her schedule at the time was always rotating when she went back to work after being on leave. And then now that the world has opened up like the last year, year and a half, we're traveling as a family, but also I'm traveling a lot more for work. I mean, we've seen each other at conferences and which I like, I miss conference. I miss the human interaction because we're committed as a virtual company. But I'm still on dad duties from like 7, 7.30 when our daughter wakes up until nine o'clock when the nanny gets here or unless she has school. And then at like 5, 5.30, it uh, just depends on what task I'm finishing up for the day. I transition back to dad mode. I'm cooking dinner with the family. We're getting our daughter in the bathtub, getting her ready for bed. And I'm in bed relatively early, like, like 9.30 to 10.30 at the latest. And I'm up at 5, 5.30 every morning and waking up, working out, getting my time in. That's my time is before my family's awake and rinse wash repeat and it feels a, a little maybe to some like a groundhog day but for me i feel great about it because i'm getting good sleep i feel well rested and i work out in the morning so i feel accomplished by starting my day with that routine and then i feel good about the time that i have with my daughter pre and post work hours so that when i'm working i'm working i'm not really distracted other than like today i scarfing down chipotle midday and taking the dog on a walk or two and it's 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 work that discipline has been a game changer for me
1: I really want you to unpack that. I think a lot of founders, I think in just any kind of work life, you you have to have these pockets of time, particularly with the parenting piece establishing that barrier of like your time before the day starts. Right. Like, I think I, I live in that same world of like, how do I get mm-hmm. as much done or how do I get the things I need to get done for myself before my son Kane wakes up and then start yeah. that kind of dogging, you know, that, that, that rodeo show of like, you yeah. know, get up, feed the kid, change the kid, entertain him get into, you know, to a nanny share daycare. How do you how do you set barriers there? I know you're pretty active and we'll talk a bit about like fitness and regimen routines here. But what do you what are the the tips you have to be able to kind of establish that 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 barrier of entry into that time you need for yourself?
0: Yeah, I, I think that being a forever learner and consuming as much as I can about successful people generally, not always, but generally successful people are early risers. And one of the things that was important to me was to get good sleep. I sleep pretty well. I can pass out like almost anywhere, whether it's a a futon or couch or if it's, you know, our own bed, which I prefer. And that prioritization of the sleep and sleeping fairly well allows me to feel refreshed when I wake up every day. And it feels like the only two times of day we can truly control our schedules, like that first hour, hour and a half when we wake up and that last hour, hour and a half before we go to bed. And just the little things, like creating such a consistency in the routine that you're not even thinking about it; it's just happening, even down the little things. So, like I, normally people start with their morning routine, I'm start with the evening routine. Like that last 30 minutes before bed, showered, pajamas on, brush the teeth, retainers in. I already have my gym clothes lined up for the next day. I got the pre-workout on my nightstand, so that the second that first alarm hits, I'm chugging it. I can't fall back asleep, and I'm out of the bed as quickly as possible. And just really trying to make sure that the house is clean and calm so that when I'm waking up, I don't feel like I have any obligation to do anything. There's no dishes that I need to finish up. There's no clothes and laundry. Not every day is perfect. But generally speaking, most days, you know, I feel good about we end the night in our home and I feel fully prepared to start the next day. Monday, you know, like a Monday through Friday routine. Saturday weekends, I'm a little more relaxed. Not like super weird about it, but OCD during the week helps.
1: No, that makes sense. I think, you know, even down to that science of having pre-workout, Workout clothes ready, something I never really thought about before becoming a father. But now those are like the small things that make a world of difference. Transitioning into, you know, your workout regimen. I I think I've seen you at my gym here in San Francisco maybe once. It's early. Mm -hmm. I go to Equinox. Typically yeah. the one on Pine Street or uh the one on Union Street. I think I've seen you there. I didn't really even get a chance to say what's up because it was like it's like you were moving out. I was moving through some workouts. What is what is your regimen like? You know, how 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 heavy do you go? How hard do you go? Uh, what are your priorities? Is it more it's obviously a health and wellness thing, but is it, you know, what is your approach to the gym?
0: Yeah, so it's it's definitely more mental than physical. Like I my my goal I think for now and forever is no dad bod, not that we're dads, so no dad bod, but Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm tall, I'm six, four, I have slimmer physique and I'm mindful of what I eat, but I'm not like so CD that I'm like, you know, ever I'm counting every calorie, but I, I do like to be mindful of what I'm eating, what I'm drinking. But that workout for me has been like my escape more than anything before I had kids, before I was married, even it's just a, it's me time. And I think it's so important to have that me time. Like we have to be selfish sometimes in order to be really good at being selfless and every day it's usually hitting heavy weights. I'll do a little cardio warm up, but it's almost always hitting heavy weights, isolated muscle groups, usually in the gym, six days per week. And when I'm traveling, I get the American Express has that Equinox credit on the membership. So I'm almost exclusively looking for hotels that are close to an Equinox because very few hotel gyms ever put the bill for like a quality workout. It's always like one or two treadmills, one or two bikes, and then like dumbbells up to 50 pounds, which for, yeah, some people it's fine, but it's like, I want to start at 50 dumbbells and go up from there, and it is uh it, it gives me peace. Like I feel like even if I have kind of a crazy chaotic day, I feel good that I had a great workout to start the morning. And it's rare for me to miss a workout. Even like if, if, if not, the listeners are small here, if I wake up hungover on a weekend, my wife and I had a few extra glasses of wine or you know cocktail, I'll still work out. Maybe a little bit later, but I still will work out. Generally speaking. And at home, even converted one of the garages, like half of our garage is full squat rack. I got plates. I got dumbbells from like 15 to 80 pounds, Mm -hmm. kettlebells, bands, because if I can't get to a gym, I at least want to get even a 30 minute workout in. So it's for me, um, I don't know, it's like the most selfish accomplishment I can have every day no matter how bad the day may end up going, Um, which most days are pretty good. But I I love the dedication to working out. And it's it's oddly something that uh, my brother and I were not like fitness geeks when we were younger. It was like started to be more influenced by that in college for the girls and the fun. And now as 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 an entrepreneur and as a dad, it just keeps me mentally focused and feeling good about protecting my health.
1: Wow, that's yeah, that's that's really a lot of lot of shared sentiment there with just getting in the gym and making sure it's a part of the day. I'm probably around five days a week try to get yes. to six. But that's that's really that's really interesting. Are you so so the other part of the conversation? I know you're in Dallas. You mentioned you guys are a fully remote company, yep. but you went to college in San Diego, from what I understand. Started Trust and Will there have now made this migration to Texas walk, you know, and you've, you know, maybe now you have more space, you have a home gym, you know, so you don't necessarily need to go to the gym. How has, you know, being in Texas impacted, you know, everything around like your life and company building uh, over these past few years?
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like I, San Diego, I born and raised California, lived in San Diego for the last 15 years. And my wife is born and raised San Diego and like never thought we'd leave. It's like such a beautiful place as most of California is, but cost of living is like ridiculous. And, you know, despite the glitz and glam of venture-backed startups, like you don't really make money. You're not guaranteed to make any money, right? Like startups yeah, have a high yeah. failure rate, but even with raising venture, you know, you'll catch up to a salary that's like in market for your stage of company your revenues. But it felt like we were trying to buy a home and chasing a dream in San Diego. But that dream was like a starter home that was going to be a million dollars for 2000 square feet that needed yeah, half thanks. a million in upgrades. And I was like, I started looking somewhat influenced by the pandemic, and we're going to commit to virtual companies. I started looking in Nevada, Arizona, Texas, uh, Nashville, Tennessee area, Boise, Idaho, the greater Salt Lake area. Like, what does a million dollars get you in these places? And I'm starting to see brand new three to 5,000 square foot homes in good parts of town with good schools, close to shopping, close to the airports with plenty of outdoor activities, whether you want to go to the mountains or go to the lake or somewhat, you know, be close enough to an airport, you can fly to the mountains or beach within a few hours. And, you know, I was like, man, I think we might actually be okay if we just try something out. And the worst case scenario, we don't like it. And we move back to San Diego. But for what we were paying for rent for a small townhouse in San Diego, it got 4,000 square feet here in Texas. And Mm -hmm. you don't, think you need that much space until you have kids and you have a backyard and you have a neighborhood. And it's like, it's been like a weight lifted off our shoulders Or yeah, I still miss San Diego every day. It's, I mean, it's bit, we had an ice storm here in Dallas this last week. The whole city shut down for three days, wow. but to have a backyard, to have a home, to have a home office, my home office is as big as our master bedroom was in our townhouse. Yeah, is so yeah. cool. Like, it feels like this would have been like, if we sold Trustemall, I could have bought a house like this in California and now I can have a home like this with my family that we can grow into. It's got a couple of extra bedrooms. So if you or anyone's crashing in Dallas, hit me up. I got an extra bed for you. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's been really nice. It's been a, a good change of pace of life too. It's very much a little bit slower here in Dallas, despite the high pace nature of being a parent as, as well as running a company.
1: Yeah. Dallas is interesting. I've been to Dallas once. I believe I was there a couple of years ago for a mortgage conference. And mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, it's, probably my favorite I've only been to Dallas and Houston in Texas I have and a little bit of San Antonio probably is my least favorite city I've been to <laughs> I would say Dallas is my favorite just from like it's it's a fairly uh, it's a huge city but huge. like you said you can get everywhere you have a American Airlines hub mm-hmm. you can get to the west coast you can get to the East Coast. Maybe talk a bit about the other side of it, right? You, you were never in like San Francisco, New York, so you were all you know you were kind of in San Diego, which is a subsidiary tech, not not known for like a tech ecosystem. Now in yeah. Dallas, uh, what types of things are you you know maybe plugs and plugs and downsides of being in Dallas as opposed to uh, one of the major tech hubs uh, from your perspective?
0: Well, I mean, the first is the obvious. It doesn't, Dallas, and I'm still an outsider. We've only been here a year, but Dallas doesn't feel like a tech hub yet. It feels like it has the potential, but all of that attention goes to Austin for very obvious reasons. There's way more startups, more venture capital. It's got that kind of smaller city vibe, but it's still Texas. But DFW area is the third or fourth largest metro in the country. They Mm -hmm. are building infinite out here. I mean, like you go up to Frisco, Plano, there's billion dollar development after billion dollar development. You have companies more, I think, Fortune 500 headquartered here than anywhere else in the country. So even though for startups, it doesn't feel like a startup city, it's very much a big business city. And that's the thing I appreciate a lot about Dallas. In terms of pro sports, it's got, I'm a big sports fan. It's got every pro sports team you can imagine. we got Kyrie coming to the Mavs here. Saw that yesterday. And beyond that, we're really happy that we're right next to the airport. So we can travel literally anywhere in the country at most a three-hour flight. And be back on on most days for generally cheaper. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, your basketball team for sure. Uh, football team is obviously emerging as always. The Cowboys, but basketball, uh, I'm really excited to see how Kyrie and Luca kind of form a nice duo there in the in that you know deep. Or I guess you could say very very wide open Western Conference. Are you, um, you know, as you talk about finances, obviously a part of the move to Dallas is just structurally here in in, in California is such a boom and bust uh, state as it comes to real estate and space. Obviously, a financial decision to have more space with the family in Texas it makes a lot more sense. The first time we talked though, you you had some very interesting perspectives around just setting yourself up personally as a founder, right? Financially, right? Whether it's like we, there's no guarantee our companies are gonna sell, there's no guarantee we're gonna raise the next round. There's no guarantee, and like me and you, like being kind of like career founders, right? There's no like job that you can just like land in that's a guarantee. How has that impacted the way you approach personal finance and the risk of being a founder and setting yourself up whether the company's successful, you're successful, W- give us give us a high level of how you think about these things day to day.
0: Yeah, what, on the entrepreneurial side, I'm always thinking runway because if you're going to go the route of raising capital, it only lasts you a certain period of time. You hit certain milestones until you're profitable or ultimately exit the business. So, you know, I've, I've never really had a, a real salary until when I raised venture capital in my last company. It's first time I had a real salary, and then when we raised our Series A, not our seed round, we paid ourselves okay. But like Series A was, we have had our first real salary. I was like, holy moly. I was like, I can afford rent. We can pay for the cars. We can like go to nicer restaurants, like buy nicer things. We've never had that luxury, yep. And pay off all of our credit cards every month. Like that was that was a huge burden. Off. I mean, my wife, she's always been the breadwinner. She's always worked in healthcare and has had a good job. Mm-hmm. I was like, hey, I can't afford. <laughs> yeah. it. Let me check my my checking account real quick here. Can you you spot me on the card and I'll pay back. Yep. So you know that was that was very liberating for me to have that first real salary and you know 2019 going into 2020 having our daughter was like let's let's just try and like reset let's pay down all our credit cards pay off the cars and let's start to build finally for the first time like build our wealth we we're bringing in more money than we we're spending and that was that was awesome and then it was in 2021 that we started considering this potential for a move we're like okay let's look at what our you know our current income can afford us from a mortgage perspective And that's where I became like relentless on credit score. Like it was like this weird side hobby and side hustle over the pandemic was like gamifying the credit score as best we could to get us the most advantage on applying for mortgage. Cause rates were like ridiculously low, like down to 2% in early 21. And I think we locked in at just above 3% cause we closed uh, February of 22 last year. Mm -hmm. And it was like a function of not having a long enough credit history because we're young, I'm 33, but like my wife and I are younger and then also not having enough accounts opened up and not opening up too many accounts in our name that it impacts credit score negatively. So, you know, we got our credit scores up to that excellent tier, which felt amazing. Like it wasn't just having credit cards paid off every month, but getting that credit score up to excellent as we went into applying for our mortgage, getting approved, it was like, that was a game changer for us. I have a bunch of more like finance credit hacks, but it really was just like a building year. Let's build financially. We're not investing money in startups. We're not putting a ton of money into the stock market. Let's be selfish, right? So later on, we can be selfless, provide for our family.
1: And you, and and so you, so so credit score was important, obviously, to be able to buy a home in Texas. You leverage that. Some of the other underlying stuff I know we talked about, and you're in the estate planning business, right? As you think about insurance, like how do you, you know, you basically you want to have certain things to, to, to just overlappingly, like, you know, kind of protect yourself financially. And I think I'm starting mm-hmm. to think of this more as a founder with yeah. a family. It's like, if, if, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, how is how is my family set up based mm-hmm. on equity? that has like, you know, very little liquidity as you get, you know, early, early stage founders, which is mostly the audience here. How have you thought about that as it pertains to these, this other, you know, kind of personal financial stack as you, as, as you,
0: yeah. as you Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So we started Mole at the end of 2017 and I was getting married at the same time and thinking about estate planning super in common for young people in general. And most people don't think about it really until they have kids. But as we were thinking about trustable as, as we thought it could be this kind of turbo tax for estate planning, I was like, what are the other things that are important that I also don't have? And like my wife and I didn't have life insurance and we're probably even too young to start getting like outreach from insurance agents at the time, which, 2017 is not that long ago, but I started getting ads from ladder life insurance around that time. And the more that I read up on it, I was like, oh, I was like, well, I get hit by a bus, like the common example or something bad happens to me. I want my wife to be taken care of. And most insurance agents for a term life policy, they'll recommend like 10X or 10 years your salary. So if you're gone, you have enough capital to rebuild or maintain a mortgage, maintain the spending threshold that you have for your family. So I think with Haven, not Haven Life, with ladder life insurance to set up like a million dollar term life policy for like 60 bucks a month and i was like well i could spend that 60 bucks on like a nice restaurant each month for my wife and i are like a couple of drinks at the bar but i was like a million dollars if i die i was like that could change her life like just the two of us and then as as we had our daughter and salary increased i wanted to scale the insurance coverage that we had so we've done a, a higher multiple of that still term life policy but just like the peace of mind like I'm in the business of death documents with trust and Mole. that like if I died today, my family gets a nice payout, trust and Mole gets a nice payout key person insurance becomes more common as the, the company matures and our estate, everything goes to my wife and daughter and that they would probably have a pretty good life, even though they'd be sad that I'm gone financially, they would be sad. And I I've, I sleep peacefully when I travel mostly, or if I, I'm not doing extreme activities, I think I violate all my policies, but like if I were to go skydiving and something bad would happen, like family's covered. Yeah. I think, Matt, I think you're muted.
1: Yeah, I said that's amazing, Cody. You were one of the first founders to really even mention a lot of these things. Ironically, these are just areas where, you know, when you set up a company, you don't think about these things. But as you get older and, you know, in our 30s, they become more relevant. And as well with having children, I think it becomes more relevant because you're not just doing it, you know, for yourself and your cap table. You're doing it for Mm -hmm. the people that are actually in the household. So transition a little bit. I think this sets up a good uh, question questions around Trust & Will. built Prior to Trust & Will, this isn't your first rodeo as well. You were building kind of a LinkedIn network platform called Industry. What triggered this position with Trust and & Will? And how did you transition into building Trust & Will? I believe, I'm not sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you did an accelerator program, but maybe walk us through the, the early ideation of Trust & Will.
0: Yeah, well, I'll start with the last company. So last company, Industry, we raised venture, raised millions of dollars, had a team of 25, and I had an unfortunate exit, not the exit founders want. And June 15th, 2017, I walked into the office, had a sales call. I knew that our investors were in town They're, They positioned it to review finances. they were meeting some other entrepreneurs in San Diego that day, like nothing out of the ordinary. Right. And I walked into the boardroom and from my co-founder was handed my papers of, you know, you're fired, Cody. Like that was, that's what happened to me. I got fired for nothing. I did wrong. but they wanted to take the company in a different direction with different leadership. And that was my last day after spending almost four years working on that as founder CEO. And I wasn't given the opportunity to stay on in any capacity, not in a role that suited my strengths, And for a month, I couldn't talk to anybody. I had to get a little bit of legal closure. So I wrote a LinkedIn post that's still live today or a LinkedIn article that talked about, you know, hey, what happened happened, it sucks, but here's the things I'm proud of, of building this company and I hope it succeeds. They took a different route and tried to pivot into crypto and initial coin offerings, which is very different than what we originally started the business for. But it gave me time to like really think about what I wanted to do for the first time in years. Like this is my second startup now that also had an exit, no exit. I was exited. And I was like, shit, I'm about to get married. I should probably just go get a job that's gonna pay me well, have good benefits. I was looking at like an entrepreneur in residence job at Nike. I was looking at some opportunities at the Amazon. And I I liked the Pacific Northwest. And I was like, I could probably go make six figures plus going and working for these two companies that I admired. And it just didn't feel right. Like I was just sitting on a whole bunch of ideas. Trust and Will was not one of them. And it wasn't until I sat down. August 4th, 2017, with a friend, Daniel Goldstein, who's my co-founder and still friend. And he and I were talking about crypto, ironically, and getting hit by buses, ironically, because we mentioned it here today. And Daniel was like, dude, if I got hit by a bus, I don't know what would happen to my Bitcoin. My family wouldn't know what it is. They wouldn't know how to find it, how to access it. And he told me how much he had in Bitcoin. I was like, dude, you better call that out in a will or something. And he's like, well, do you have a will? Like, you're getting married. And I was like, no, but it was kind of on my to-do list because my, my wife, her father passed many years ago and we saw the negative side of that. He didn't have a will, assets ended up in probate. It took years to close it out, like kind of close out that chapter of his life. And it just kind of stuff lingered. I just didn't like that. Yeah. And I was like, well, if I'm going to get married, I want to be a good husband. That's why the life insurance was already kind of in motion before trust them all. And I was like, we should set up a will, like a basic will. And that led me down this path of looking online, not liking LegalZoom, no offense LegalZoom. And then also looking at attorneys and like, I couldn't afford a three to $5,000 attorney package. So that's for Daniel and our third co-founder, Brian, the three of us were like, all of our friends are 30 to 40. We're all getting married, having kids, buying our first home. This should be something that you can do easily and affordably online. And when we saw that half the population doesn't have an estate plan, we're like, "Holy moly, this is a huge opportunity to go help people that need it the most who don't think they can do it online." And it's not as it's just you know it's just as legitimate as as an attorney drafted estate plan. So that that's what we've been building for five years now, and have helped almost half a million families start the process in all fifty states. I feel really good about helping families. Wow,
1: that's a great great way to get in building a product. And I'm I'm in the same boat. I think that's an area where many people just don't think about it early enough. Funny enough, my mom, who actually, I think she just finished a surgery today. She had an operation and, you know, she was, she's most recently, you know, my mom's in her 60s, set up a will and, you know, just sending information and communicating what's, what's, what, what assets are where is very, very, I think it's an area where a lot of people just avoid it because it's such a kind of hard thing to talk about, right? Like what if this process doesn't go well i want you to have this so i think it's it's a much needed product did you all uh, participate in an accelerator through this program
0: or yeah yeah so we we went through Techstar. so we we incorporated at the end of 2017 you don't like realize how much you learn doing all this until you do it again and when we started the company like immediately knew to go raise capital from angel investors we entered a pitch competition, took third place, and then uh, managing director from Techstars, one of their programs, he encouraged us to apply, and we got in. And it was like a huge, for us at the time, it was like a huge deal. We're like, wow, we're super early stage in Techstars, kind of up there with the Y Combinators, one of the top tech accelerators. And it was an amazing experience because even though we went through that program five years ago, January through April of 2018, <clears throat> we still feel the effect of Techstars. It taught us to be better recruiters for team to Build better fundraising pipelines to build better products, start making better partnerships, thinking through corp dev opportunities, exit scenarios. So it's just like getting that like Ivy League accelerator treatment very early in our journey. And uh, I'm very grateful for Techstars for having gone through it.
1: And and with that question, I ask a lot of founders that do participate in accelerators. Outside of yourself and the Trust & Will team, and you guys are still building a gigantic company, who were the more successful people from that? You know, you have a five-year track record now of the companies that you participated <laughs> in that match with. Are there any ones that come to mind that were like, wow, these, this team was was super dynamic and, and and amazing, and you were obviously working with them in the early? Oh like, yeah,
0: yeah. I think well, we'd have to compare valuations and revenues. They might be ahead of us, but there's these three co-founders of a company called DNS Filter. It's a DNS like domain mm-hmm. filtering privacy platform. Mm-hmm. And they're so technical that when they first pitched it, I was like sold. I was like the most boring businesses that were both born, I think, boring businesses yeah. are sometimes the most exciting because there's true opportunities for innovation. So I remember even then I was like, I think these guys are onto something and uh, they've raised quite a bit of capital, have not sold, uh, have not raised, I think they've raised like 40 million or something like that, 30 mm-hmm. or 40 million but a uh, DNS filter. Shout out to Ken, Ken and the team over there. Really impressed. I was impressed with them now. Very impressed
1: with them now today. Wow. Yeah. That's so. That's, that's an amazing story and an amazing space because it, it touches yeah. a lot of technical uh, yeah. stuff that people don't talk about or know about. So great. So you all, you all completed that, completed that um, accelerator, and you know, fast forwarding to today, you guys have raised over thirty million or so in equity. Uh, you've, you mentioned you've reached you know hundreds of thousands of people with a trust and will plan. As you are setting founders, you know, this is obviously a show for founders. Uh, what are, what are some areas where, you know, you've learned this in your second or third startup that are just game changers to just know as a, getting started for people that are getting started or trying to transition to be founders or really at that point of incorporation, what would you, what would you say are the, the, the top two or three things you've learned?
0: Yeah, If I think back to the early stage days, sometimes it's just like the basic business fundamentals, like knowing upfront to be a Delaware C-Corp, starting our cap table with Carta, going mm-hmm. with corporate counsel, like a DLA Piper, Cooley, Mintz Levin, Wilson Sonsini, going with them from day one and asking them to do deferred fees up until you raise a certain amount of capital or you're driving a certain amount of revenue. So you don't have to have legal bills mounting up. Yeah, Basically, yes. even corporate insurance, like setting up D&O and E&O insurance, like, All these things that I thought were so boring, didn't want to touch them with a 10 foot pole to knowing to set that up day one. And so we really, we set up that successful foundation from the beginning that leads to less legal costs down the line. And I think the bigger lesson that if for the listeners is I got fired at my last company and what I didn't know when we raised venture capital, your corporate counsel, they're the company's counsel. They're not your counsel. So I was an at will employee of the company that I founded and was CEO of. So with trust and will, and I encourage this to to all founders out there, when you raise venture capital, or if you're going to raise venture capital and you're taking on outside board members, hire third-party counsel that can represent you and really button up your employment agreements with the company. You're a CEO, and I know this responsibility, even five years in, you're always first to go no matter what. And I've accepted it a little bit more here, but that there's a way to protect yourself with accelerated vesting, you have pay, it might be accelerated uh, payout of your salary, but like you can protect yourself. So you have a little bit of a cash cushion. So you're not like I was, I got fired and I was getting married in four months after that. I had no income. Like that was terrifying. So to have a little bit of protection, income protection or vesting protection, I think is wise. And then every time you raise a subsequent round of venture capital is having that document set reviewed. Because if you can negotiate early on, in favor of yourself or your co-founders for the three of us, Daniel, Brian, and I we have equal agreements. There's no change in the agreements, but we have a little bit more protection and I can sleep a little bit better at night with that. And that's my, my encouragement to founders out there as you raise capital, protect yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's great. Great founder kind of, I guess, operational things. They'll just know and just set all these things up earlier rather than later when you're you know thinking about, the customer of trust and will and who you guys are building for what are what were some of the first early signs of hey we can we can obviously productize this very nuanced unsexy process for people and maybe how how are you all kind of thinking about that first customer and how did that flywheel get going to now you said you've reached hundreds of thousands of customers i know you guys have many enterprise partnerships set up and distribution is something you guys have really started to develop a unique mode around. But in that early day one of selling a trust and will online, what was that that process like for you all to get that first first customer?
0: Yeah, uh, a famous Silicon Valley investor, Paul Graham, he's got a quote, says, do things that don't scale.
1: Yep. And
0: when we were in Techstars, we had a beta. This beta was just a last will and testament in the states of California and Texas for two reasons. One, they're the two largest states. Brian and I went to school at San Diego State so all of our friends that went to school we could shame them if they were parents without a will and then Daniel went to school at Baylor and all of his friends at Baylor were like on kid number three or four by the time they're like early 30s so we gave we yeah so we get fast they're much quicker than yeah Cali West Coasters so we were like respectfully shaming our friends to like sign up for our beta no cost just give us some feedback But that's like the perk. I talk a lot about the power of your network and people think you have to have success to have a successful network. It's not true. If you went to a school, if you've worked at a big company, if you've volunteered for a larger organization, you share that bond of alumni status and not taking advantage of that as an entrepreneur is the biggest mistake you can do because you never know who somebody knows. You never know the influence somebody has. And in the early days for us, and still true today, our alumni base from my alma mater and from Daniels Customers, a lot of them are customers of Trust them all. Mm-hmm. But over time, that alumni support network can turn into future investors of your company. They work at companies you want to partner with. They might want to come work for you at your company. And we've done all of that, all of the above at Trust them all. At least for for us at San Diego State, we got a couple of alumni, and uh, I'm really proud of that.
1: No, that's amazing. I think alumni alumni network is very underutilized. People talk about it at the high all that, you know, the Stanford, but like, I mean, I went to James Madison, like tapping into that community, you went to San Diego State, tapping into the community of founders and or people that would support you early on is really important. Uh, Cody, that's great. Great. These are great nuggets for our founder uh, kind of community. Definitely want to leave this last few seconds or minutes of the podcast for you to kind of where can people find out more about you? Where can people find out more about? your, you know, trust and will, current business, other interesting things that you like to kind of reference for people to go check more out and learn more about you and the company?
0: Yeah. Well, first and foremost, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm easy to find on all socials, just Cody Barbo and, and our website, Trust and, will, and on social at trust and Will. If you need an estate plan or if you want to help your parents out, please send them our way. We'll take good care of them. And if there's anything I leave people with, the audience is... Don't forget to have a a vision for yourself. There's of all companies, uh, Lululemon has a really great vision and goals worksheet. You just Google Lululemon vision and goals worksheet. And the thing I love about it is you're projecting a vision statement of yourself out 10 years from now. And it has your 10 year goals, your five year goals and your one year goal. And it's broken into professional, personal and health. And it's not, and I found it in 2015. It was the first year I found it. And I'm not like, I'm like eight years in on this 10 year plan. I'm always just pushing it out 10 years where I want to be in 10 years. And I think that life, especially entrepreneurship has so many ups and downs. If you ever feel like you're getting veering off course, pull that document up or create your own version of it in your notes app. It'll bring you back to your North star and make sure that you're going down the right path. I think that so few people have the discipline to think that far out, 10 years is a really long time. Think about where you were 10 years ago. But if you can continue to push yourself to push that document 10 years out, you'd be surprised what you can achieve. And uh, I'm proud, if I look back to like the 2015 edition Eight years in, I'm pretty close to where I wanted to be. And if I think ten years out from today, thirty-three, where am I going to be at forty-three? Uh, I hope that I achieve a lot of the things that are on there. So that's that's my recommendations. Go check out that doc.
1: Awesome, Cody, man. This has been great to catch up. Uh, we'll definitely see each other on the circuit, I'm sure, at some point this year. Yes, sir. Uh, obviously, if you're in San Francisco, shout shout me out. And then if I'm in Dallas, I will definitely take you up on on your offer. But thanks okay. a lot, Cody. Cody. This is Cody Barbo head and CEO and founder of trust and will on the stretch for podcast. Uh, Thanks a lot, Cody. Uh, We'll see you soon.
0: Thanks, man.